Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hello. <laughs> now I'm ready. <laughs> um, wanted to um, start the talk with a a passage that I, I love from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi, <clears throat> one of the great Dharma books of all time. He says, um, in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, Almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in practice, in meditation, you'll find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding about practice. If you think the aim of meditation practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you'll have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If you practice meditation in the right way, it doesn't matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? he would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find that the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> mm -mm. Unless you sit perfectly in full lotus. There, there's hope for you yet. <coughs> this tendency to uh, judge how we're doing and compare ourselves to others or to some idealized impossible standard is so um, prevalent and um, typical in practice. Anybody find that they get caught in that sometimes? Oh, okay, I'm not alone then. And what the Buddha 
called this as far as the um, the complication that comes from the the comparing mind and the judging mind. Uh, he called the conceit of I am. The conceit of I am, and this is uh, in in Pali is called mana, where you are comparing yourself to others. This is uh, from the Buddha. <clears throat> One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason is lost in dispute. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from such views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> and you could probably guess who is most annoyed by our views and opinions. This is what we do to ourselves. So I wanted to talk tonight about this tendency to judge and, and compare uh, and perhaps offer some, some ways to work with it. One thing that's, uh, that's comforting to know um, is that, or may be comforting to know, is that um, in, the, uh, in the unfolding of the process of awakening, there are, are four stages in the classical Theravadan um, unfolding the stream enterer, Sotapanna, the once returner, the non returner, and the fully enlightened being, the arhat. At the third stage of enlightenment, which is pretty rarefied air, there's still the conceit of I am. There's still the comparing and the judging mind. So if you find that you're prey to this, one way to think of it is that, well, I'm no higher than third stage of enlightenment anyway. <laughs> but you've got a lot of company, a lot of company. And you might notice from that, that passage that it's not just, the word conceit, we usually associate it with being better than, but he says being superior or inferior or even equal to, you are lost in the conceit of I am because there's this separation. How am I doing relative to them? So in any way that you find yourself somehow measuring up against some idealized standard, just to know, understand this mental fabrication that you're creating um, that is so common in the mind and the heart, so painful, and is really the doorway, can be a doorway to freedom when you see through it. <clears throat> when, for you, do you notice it? There's 
lots of opportunities on, on retreat, even not saying a word to anybody else, of course, let alone being outside in, in daily life when as soon as you open up your mouth and you're saying, you know, uh-oh, are they smarter than I am or are they cooler than I am or am I, am I the coolest one in the crowd now, whatever. But here in silence, it still happens, have you noticed? You know, especially in social situations, such as the dining room. You know. There you are, sitting across from a few people. You ever notice how much food people put on their plate? You know? Oh my God, look what they're putting on. Gosh, don't they eat? Are they a little bird? Or you drop a fork and, and it clangs in the, in the dining room and you're sure that every eye is on you. you know, what a klutz, you know. Mm. Or other social situation, uh, walking meditation. Or, oh, well, yoga, of course, that's a, that's a setup, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness, you know, look at that body. I can barely lift my arm above my shoulder and they're doing pretzels and twists. And, um, but even in walking, you know, there, there you are just, you ever notice how, how that works? You know, you're, you're walking slowly and somebody uh, walks faster at a not natural pace and the mind can go either way. It could say, you know, gosh, they just don't care at all what people think. I wish I could be like that, you know. Or, don't they get it? Why don't they slow down, you know? <laughs> Could be an hour later, the same exact scenario, just a different way. Or, how are you doing? How am I doing? I, I've shared this before on, on one retreat. Uh, when I, I, in my earlier days, I really loved going super slow. It just was fun. But I'd be all by myself, and I'd be, you know, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, so sweet. Somebody else would come into my, my sphere and I would start to note accurately, lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, <laughs> moving, looking good, looking good, you know. Because that was what was going on, you know. Okay, let's just call it like it is, you know. It's so amazing. And we have such, particularly our culture, is such a competitive culture. You know, we're number one. You ever see at the, you know, the stadiums, they, they sell the big, the big sponge hands with the finger up. We're number one. At least it's this index finger. We're, <laughs> we're number one. We're number one. Uh, and particularly in our culture, it's not just ours, but America is particularly this individualistic, better than, and it's so painful. Better than, which just sets up a worse than, which is, um, can only lead to, um, to pain, to, conditioning to hearing messages of not as good or better than, which leads to privilege or to 
an unconscious privilege or can lead to uh, deep wounding. Uh, it's in the culture so deep. <clears throat> and it can be about anything. My looks, my mind, my accomplishments, even, even my neuroses, right? I, I remember going, when I was in college, you, um, you know, I read a lot of existential stuff, and, you know, I, I, for me, the more screwed up you were, the deeper you were, you know, so I'm, I am really screwed up, yes, you know, I must be very deep. Um, gosh, they are happy, isn't that shallow? <laughs> and it carries on all through your your unfolding, even as a you know as a Dharma teacher. You know, don't think that because some we're sitting up here that we're we're over the comparing mind. When I first started teaching, started teaching retreats. This is in the uh, early '80s. And it would be down at, say, Yucca Valley with 150 or, or more yogis. And I'd be teaching with um, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and Sharon Salzberg, and me. Right? <laughs> Joseph would give a talk, just blow everyone's mind with his clarity and depth. Jack would weave this spell that just hypnotized everybody, you know. Sharon would give a talk on metta and tears would be coming down people's cheeks. And then I'd have to give the talk, right? And I knew if I was in the audience, I'd be saying, get that guy off, get Goldstein back on, right? It was really painful, so painful. You know. And I at one point, I, I went to um, Ramdas, who was, uh, has, has been a mentor of mine for years, who many of you know wrote Be Here Now and the book that changed my life. And, uh, and I was fortunate enough to, uh, to have a relationship with him. And I, and I went to him one time and I said, this is so painful. You know, I, I get up there on the, in the seat and I just know what's going on in people's minds or imagine, you know. And, and, you know, what can I do? And he said, you know, Joseph Goldstein's already taken. Don't try to be another Joseph Goldstein. Why don't you just be the best Jamie Barras you can be? I was Jamie in those days. Why don't you just be the best Jamie Barras you can be? He, he's not taken yet. You might actually find you've got something to say. And um, it was really, what a gift. What a gift that was. But I'd still see that in my mind. And um, just, it's, it's part of the deal. This is from, I'll share with you another story from somebody a bit more accomplished than, than uh, me. Um, this is uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who, um, as many of you know, is one of the, is the, is the most senior Western Theravadan um, uh, monk who was uh, Jack Cornfield's big brother, elder, when they both studied with Ajahn Chah and started all the uh, uh, Amaravati um, uh, Sangha and monasteries. And he, this is what he says. He says, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. 
even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher and teaching eight or nine-year-old uh, Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in, in Thai, all of this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho. You can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid thought, talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. Mm. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of what was going on inside. And fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. One time at a ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up till that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. <laughs> and at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. <laughs> now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedha, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks of so many years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of this self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So here we are caught in these minds that we believe. Even if you know better, even if you somehow conceptually understand just my mind creating a story it can still get activated and be painful because the conditioning is so deep that even though the mind might know, the body is still subject to, uh, to that contraction. And then that makes it that much more humbling to see, wow, I'm still stuck. Here I am shooting a second arrow or a quiver of arrows, you know, just on top, of, on top of the first pain, there's the judgment for having it. And then you really can get lost in it. So painful.
And what is it about? It's having some kind of idea about what your meditation is supposed to look like. And really, you have very little control over what your meditation looks like at any one time. Have you noticed? I hope you've noticed. You come in here and say, I really want to give it everything I've got. I really want to get concentrated this time, or I really, I really want to be clear. And your mind is everywhere. And then other times you come in and you say, I know this is going to be the, the sitting from hell, and all of a sudden, there you are. Has that happened to you? It is so freeing. A, a, a real shift in my own practice was one moment, and I can even remember where, on what retreat, in what room, it occurred to me, I have no control over what goes through my mind. I have no control over how concentrated or mindful I am in any one sitting. That might sound like bad news, but it's great news. You know, if you had control over how your mind worked, you'd probably just have thoughts of blessing everybody and sending loving kindness, but probably a few others slip in there from time to time, right? But to realize I don't have control in any one moment where what my meditation is like, but I do have input and control over the willingness to the intention to be here as much as I can and the willingness to bring myself back whenever I see I've gone. And it just so happens that that's really your secret ingredient. And rather than evaluating your practice by what it looks like from the outside, you know, the other day we heard a, a, a lovely talk about effort. For me, the key to effort is not evaluating what's going on outside. It's feeling the sincerity of heart that you bring to your practice, which can vary depending upon how much energy you have, what it looks like, but to have the willingness to really be here as best you can. Can you do any better than the best you can? No. If you could, you probably would. But to get in touch with your own sincerity and to let go of having this illusion of a hindrance-free, being a hindrance-free yogi. You know, and everybody might have a different idea of what a good yogi can look like. I, I remember on one retreat uh, early on where you know, I was just kind of being with, being with the breath and it seemed like everybody around were having these deep catharses and boxes of tissues were just going through, you know, uh, and I'd be hearing weeping and sobbing and wailing and, and it sounded really juicy, right? <laughs> it did, you know, and I, I went to Joseph and I said, 
I don't know what's going on, but I'm just feeling my breath come in and out. And <laughs> it's not a very big deal, you know. Am I missing out on something? You know, I, I, and he gave me some good advice. He said, don't go looking for trouble. It'll find you soon enough. <laughs> but we can have these ideas, oh, I want a rich, heartfelt experience. Or, gee, I wish I'd get over these emotions and just feel my breath. You, know, uh, you have all kinds of notions and ideas. So what are you measuring up against? Some fabricated ideal, either about the person next to you. you know, everybody here is sitting like a Buddha and I'm freaking out inside, I know. <laughs> or what you did yesterday, you know, I had it, now I don't have it. All of these, these comparisons and then the judgment about something is wrong with me. I'm not, I'm not doing it well enough, good enough. And uh, it's painful. And it is really rooted in the idea that I'm not enough. Somewhere or another, not being enough, not being complete, not being good enough, and feeling unworthy, feeling somehow that you don't measure up There was a, there's a, a teaching from uh, The Course in Miracles, a, a beautiful uh, Christian body of Dharma teachings. It says something like, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. This pain of unworthiness, of not enough. And one of the hardest parts is thinking, well, there's no hope for me. And thinking, who am I kidding? I, you know, I'm not going to change. You know, this is too long a road to hoe. And it's something to keep in mind that, you know, as Pema Chodron says, you start where you are. And all you need to do is face in the right direction and take the next step and come back to your own sincerity of heart. And you're on a path that leads to greater and greater freedom. Don't think that change isn't possible. Change is possible. No matter what circumstances you've come from, no matter where you are in your own heart or what traumas you've gone through, that's why this path is such a gift. It is a path to freedom. I wanted to share uh, a story that I found very inspiring um, about a, a young man, uh, an African-American man named Sean Kyler, who um, was in prison for, who I think he, st he might still be in prison for many years. Um, 
he was a gang member uh, in, uh, I forget where he's from, what, what inner city, but he, um, he then was fortunate enough to uh, be part of this uh, program for higher education, Hudson Link for Higher Education and, and Mercy College. And I know somebody who um, had a lot to do with starting this program, and that's how I, I got into um, uh, and seeing Sean's story. And he's on YouTube, by the way, so I'm going to share something that you can see on YouTube. His, his last name is K-Y-L-E-R. And uh, this was his valedictorian speech graduating from Mercy College. He says, we come here to celebrate achievement over failure, perseverance over hesitancy, better tomorrows over the worst of our yesterdays. We are no longer the people we were when we first took our step on this academic journey. We do not perceive or experience the world in the same manner we once did. Our cognitive ability as well as our behavior has suddenly undergone a change, a transformation. This transformation is not so much a metamorphosis into someone new, but actually a reconnection to our authentic self. That person we were before and our response to life situations detoured us from the socially acceptable path to success. And he says, I'll just share uh, some of it. He, he says he always loved school, uh, but he was shy about succeeding in it because of peer pressure. Uh, and in adolescence, he'd get good grades, uh, but he'd hide them from his friends and lied to them, saying he just got lucky so that they'd continue to accept him. Then he goes on to say, at some point, my faulty thinking turned into my reality, and my academic pursuit was left on the side of the road. With my new reality, the acceptance of my friends became the most important thing to me. I was blinded by the desire to be accepted, and ultimately I became a follower. I had to live with shame for 21 years until life presented me with an opportunity to mend my mother's broken heart and a chance to rectify my misplaced values and misplaced loyalty and my faulty thinking. This college gave me a chance to ask for mercy. And he says, one professor was really the turning point who asked him, how do you plan to touch the world? And that's what started waking him up. My answer is clear now by using this experience to help as many people as I can to taste education's sweet elixir. One teacher, he says, uh, told him that any great change must accept, expect opposition because it shakes the foundation of privilege. And he thanked another teacher who, whose solid toughness provided the discipline he needed to not fall short. He says, I fully accept the philosophy that in order to change a person's behavior, you must first change the way that person thinks. 
And then he says in his valedictorian speech to his fellow graduates, today signifies the beginning of our duty to use this education to better not only ourselves, but humanity. Our communities need us to help save our younger generation. It is obligatory that we respond. We must never forget that our supporters have extended charity to us, so it is incumbent upon us to extend even more charity to others. We can no longer sit idly by. We are now beacons of light that must steer those lost in the dark to the shores of positivity of education. We are now reconnected to our authentic self. It is time to let that person shine to let that person reach for the stars and touch the world. And then he finishes his speech by quoting uh, the, an essay that became his beacon, um, which is called uh, Anyway, as a tribute to Mother Teresa. And this is what he says in his own paraphrasing. People are often unreasonable, Ill illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. But be honest anyway. What you spend years building someone could destroy overnight, but we have to build anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. We're going to do good anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. We're going to be happy anyway. If you give the world the best you have, it might never be enough but we're going to give the best we can anyway. Because you see in the final analysis, it's between you and yourself. It was never between you and them anyway. It's possible to change. No matter what kind of an idea you have about who you are, don't be locked in to that picture or that image and thinking, oh, well, because this happened in my past, I'll never, and you can fill in the blank. Or because I haven't been gifted with whatever, I can't fill in the blank. See, who you really are. That's, that's the key. And rather than seeing who you are through a skewed um, filter to not miss your goodness, to not miss the, what Adran Sumedho calls the shining through of the divine. This is... Uh, can find it. Where is it? Yoshul Kempo 
says, Buddha nature, great Tibetan master, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment is present in everyone. Its fundamental essence is forever perfect, pure, flawless, and unchanging. Its expressions are myriad. Those who reject their true nature or overlook it are deluded. Those who recognize it are enlightened. There is no way to enlightenment other than recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. This is what we're doing here. We're seeing through the obscurations that keep us blind, that keep us confused. That's when we took refuge in the Buddha at the beginning. We took refuge in seeing this is who I really am when I'm not confused or lost. And why Vipassana is called seeing things clearly. To see things clearly, we are taking away the veils, the obscurations, to see what wants to come out, what loves to come out, your natural goodness, your natural kindness, your natural awareness, pure awareness, that when given the right conditions, shines through. I'll read a, a passage that um, I'm sure some of you know, uh, but some of you don't, so I want to share it, um, about a whole other way of looking at yourself. Mm -hmm. And this, is, uh, this can be found in Jack's book, Jack Cornfield's book, The Art of Forgiveness, um, Loving Kindness and Peace. In the Babemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he's placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. Pretty good tribe to hang out with, would you say? When you hear that, when it gets to that part where they tell that person all the good things they've done, doesn't it make sense? Of course, how could we have missed it? As opposed to our criminal justice system that just 
keeps people further down and embittered. How crazy that is. Why not remind us of our goodness? And when you're getting caught in your own smallness, remember who you really are. Remember your goodness, just like the Babemba. <clears throat> so I want to um, share with you some, some thoughts about perhaps working with this judging mind, this comparing mind, this not good enough mind. <clears throat> the first is having great compassion for this predicament. As I said, you've got a lot of company and rather than coming down on yourself for getting lost, just realizing, oh, this has been conditioned for a long time and it's going to take a while. Not to think it's going to happen overnight. I have shared the story, I'll just tell an abbreviated version, where I was humbled by my mind. Just there I was, it was on my first retreat, walking really slowly all by myself, like I said a little while ago, and, and I just pretended to see how slowly I could go. I, I pretended to be like Marcel Marceau, the, the great mime, right? And into the, re the, the room came this person who had just come from the outside at the very first two retreats at IMS, they tacked on a two-week retreat at the end of the three-month course. Wasn't a good idea. <laughs> you could really tell somebody's energy, and I knew this was going to be really bizarre, but I wasn't going to stop my game. And there I was, just really crawling, and they were going back and forth, and after about two minutes, they bolted out of the room in what I was sure was the comparing in their mind. And as they went by, thought occurred to me, wow, really blew her mind. <laughs> <laughs> she must think I'm a great yogi. <laughs> and then I heard in all its glory that ego and that look at me and it was disgusting. And from that slow walking, I became like a caged tiger, just going back and forth, really. Just, and I, I'm never, I'm never going to get out of this mind. What a phony you are. Who do you think you're kidding and all? I did that for about 10 minutes. And then at some point, it occurred to me the millions and millions of times I've had that thought. But I just wasn't able to track it. It was so much a part of me that I couldn't see it. But here in the clarity after two and a half months of sitting, I thought, oh gosh, look at that. And the m when I thought of the millions of times I practiced that in this lifetime, and by that time I was starting to think in terms of li many lifetimes, it just kind of mind boggling. It was the f a first landmark experience of genuine compassion where I said to myself, you are really giving this your all. You've been practicing this a long time, this other way. This is going to take some time. 
and there was this wave of compassion that came over me that was much more significant than seeing how slowly I could go. And uh, it was, it stayed with me. Oh, just get in touch with your sincerity and forgive yourself for that habit. One technique in forgiving yourself, I don't think we've done it here, we've kind of alluded to it, is having compassion for the confusion uh, and doing what's called the mindful self-compassion break. This is uh, from Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, who've created this beautiful program, two strong practitioners um, who practiced here at Spirit Rock at IMS, uh, who've done a lot of research and packaged this um, approach, mindful self-compassion. And here's the mindful self-compassion break as a tool that you might use uh, when things get hard. Uh, I like to do it as a four-step process. And you can, if you want, try it along with me. First step, put your hand on your heart, which physiologically releases oxytocin and soothes, calms down the system. Just feel what that's like. Can you feel it? And then three phrases which you can modify to use in your own words. But the first phrase is just acknowledging this is a moment of suffering or this is hard or wow, this hurts. The classic one when they use, this is a moment of suffering and just really acknowledging, wow, this is hard. Second phrase, suffering is a part of life. And you might for a moment think of all the people in the world who are going through what you're going through right now, whether it's fear or sadness or loneliness or rage or wanting. Suffering is a part of life. And in that you can feel connected to everybody instead of so alone. And then the third, may I, may I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. And just offering that to yourself. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. May I hold my suffering with kindness and compassion. And as you're here with your hand on your heart, both let yourself take it in, take in that comforting, and also get a sense that you're the one that's comforting. There's Kuan Yin right through your hand. And there's a, a connection, a wholeness that you can bring just with a simple gesture of kindness towards yourself. So that's the first tool I would suggest. Forgiveness, self-compassion for 
all the judgment when it comes up. Every time another way, uh, I share this with somebody uh, just just uh, yesterday uh, or uh, today, maybe. Um, that was my practice for about two years. This is a variation. This is many years ago when I did this because I saw I really needed to work with the judging. You know, I have a good judging mind. You know, probably even better than yours. You know? <laughs> Uh, and I really saw that I, I really needed to work with this. And this is my main practice, another variation. You might try this when you, if you see yourself judging. Oh, judging, judging. And I was a mental noter, and I'd note, oh, judging. And I said, I just judged it again. Oh, judging. <laughs> you know. So I wanted to change that around. Just try this. Put your hand on your cheek. And as if you were the kindest, wisest, you know, Kuan Yin doing the noting, just silently saying to yourself, oh, judging, judging, like it's okay, dear. And let yourself feel the tenderness. Just feel it for a moment. Judging, oh, it's okay. You feel that? That was my main practice for about two years. And I didn't do this all the time. I would do it when I'd forget, but there was something I felt, just like in this, about, about actually touching yourself that v v uh, viscerally um, reminded me to be kind. But after a while, the tone in my voice was that compassionate attitude. And instead of thinking, oh, another judgment, it's like, oh, another chance for me to practice compassion. Then I started getting excited about <laughs> noticing the judgments. A second, mm, a second way to work with the judging mind <coughs> is, and was mentioned in one of the morning sessions, I think, just seeing how empty those thoughts are. The, that thought has just come out of nowhere and we're believing it. Joseph Goldstein has a, a very uh, brilliant instruction that you might find helpful. He says, if you're bothered by your thoughts and you're here in the meditation hall, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> it's great. It works every time. You know, you're just picking up some radio waves maybe. You, know. you don't invite oh, let's have a little self-flagellation now, you know. It just is there. And your thoughts are as real as you believe them to be or as empty as you see them to be. So just seeing through the emptiness of the thoughts. Another tool that you might find helpful, sense of humor makes a big difference. If you can shift from, oh my goodness, look at my mind, to, wow, look at the mind do its thing. Then you're in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. And humor is another way to release that identification. On one retreat, working with the judging mind, it was uh, on a three-month retreat, um, 
I took this couplet from my favorite piece of Dharma wisdom, the third Zen patriarch, verses on the faith mind, the one that starts the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, in case you're familiar with that one. And there's this one line in there, or this couplet, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. That made sense to me. The burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. So every time I'd see a judging thought, I would just tack on the burdensome practice of judging, just to remind myself that other perspective. And I'd go into the dining room, for instance, which is, like I said, a very social situation, and it would be amazing. There I would be, oh my goodness, they're going for another portion, the burdensome practice of judging. Yeah, yeah, or, oh, look at Miss Mindfulness eating so, the burdensome <laughs> practice of judging, right? And I, I literally would find myself saying it 50, 75 times that I'd catch at a meal. It was like one after another. And after a while, what else could you do but just laugh? Look at this mind just completely out of control. Yeah. Wow, amazing. So. I uh, recommend that one highly if you can if you can laugh at yourself. Something else. You might just um, act as if you were enlightened. It it works up to a point, you know. Just oh, if I were a Buddha right now. How would the Buddha relate to this mind? And by the way, it's something to keep in mind. Mara, you probably are familiar with Mara, the, the great tempter who tried to throw the Buddha off his seat before he was enlightened. There's a whole um, section in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected verses, of um, Mara coming to visit the Buddha. It's about 20 or so vignettes where Mara comes and visits the Buddha after he's enlightened. Like one where he'll, that Mara comes and he, and he says something like, you call yourself an ascetic? You're sleeping four hours a night. What kind of a wimp are you, basically? <laughs> you know. And each time the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And Mara kind of slinks away, you know, curses foiled again. If Mara can come to the Buddha, cut yourself a little slack, right? But each time the Buddha says, I see you, Mara, you might just try it. I see you, Mara, or as one person today said, I don't believe you. Act as if you were awakened. And that's where also uh, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Buddha right inside of you this is the great uh, gift of practice, and we're all practicing here together because there's something in us that has called us that's stronger than all the doubt, all the confusion, all the, the fear, all the smallness. 
Don't miss that. Don't miss it. As long as you are exploring and examining this mind and body and you're doing it with goodwill and the intention to wake up, you can't help but keep on moving in the right direction. And not only do you benefit, but everybody in your life benefits. All the ways that you found yourself confused, like Suzuki Roshi said at the very beginning, sometimes the worst horse can be the best one because you will taste the marrow of practice. So nothing is wasted and you will know when somebody says, my mind is just so painful, you'll be able to say, I know what that's like. I know what that's felt like, what it feels like, and I found it's possible to wake up. Just little by little, all you need to be is right where you are and take the next step and understand that that judging mind, that comparing mind, is just part of this journey that you are on that will help you wake up. Let's see if I have one. There was a, I can find it. So this is from Ramdas from Be Here Now. As you further purify yourself, your impurities will seem grosser and larger. Understand that it's not that you're getting more caught in the illusion. It's just that you're seeing it more clearly. The lions guarding the gates get fiercer as you go towards each inner temple but of course, the light gets brighter too. So let's sit for a moment. you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.